0: Good morning, gang. Take your Bible, if you brought in, and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, all right? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'll tell you a little something about how your New Testament is laid out. Uh, it begins with the four Gospels. We call them biographies sometimes because that's what they are. They're biographies. They tell the story of Jesus Christ. Uh, the fifth book in your New Testament is the book of Acts, and it's a book of church history. In fact, all of the other epistles, beginning with Romans, all the way to almost Revelation, Uh, were written during the chronology, the time span that's covered or described in the book of Acts. And then starting with the book of Romans, the way the epistles are laid out is typically with the largest of Paul's all the way down to the smaller one. That's why Romans is the biggest and they get smaller from then on down. Uh, And then they begin again in Hebrews with the general epistles and so on and so forth through the remainder of the 27 books we call our New Testament. John Cook could not have chosen a better song to introduce this message today and its theme. Today we're going to talk about recognizing our need for God. Weakness is something that we typically don't like. Most of us are into comfort and things that are comfortable I can remember 15 years ago, I was going through a terrible time with my back. You know, Many of you know I had a bad accident in college, and, and it gives me some problems every now and then. About 15 years ago, I was turning 40, I think. Uh, people told me, man, when you turn 40, Pastor Mike, things just start falling off. Be prepared. Okay, uh, That's the way I felt. I went through this horrible time where I could barely get out of bed in the morning, and it took an hour or more to be able to move around, to be able to stand up straight. It was Terribly painful. Nerve pain in your back, if you've ever had it, uh, you know, that's nothing to mess with. That's serious stuff. So I made the rounds. I went to my doctor, and I went to my chiropractor, and I I went to even a massage therapist, which felt good while they were doing that, but then the pain and the tightness, the inflammation, it just came right back. Uh, I even took some steroids, kind of toned down that inflammation. I finally zeroed in on my bed, my mattress specifically. I said, you know, doctors say, and and people say you ought to get a new bed about every eight to 10 years because you just wear them out. Okay. Uh, So I said, I said, Amy, we've got to buy a better bed. That's my whole problem. I'm not sleeping properly and I'm waking up in pain. So we went shopping and we did some research and and I, you know, swiped a credit card and bought about a $1,200 box spring and mattress and brought it home. It was one of those, you know, postrapedic something or other, pillow top, this, that, and the other. And it still didn't work. I mean, after two, three weeks on that thing, I was ready to take it out back and set it on fire. Okay? And this is back before they gave you 100 sleep trial nights. You know, that's a lot of bed companies do that now. They say, you take our bed home, and for 90 nights or 100 nights, you sleep on it. If you don't like it, we'll come get it. Uh, well, they didn't do that back then. Listen. In 15 months, I bought four mattresses. We were mattress poor. I couldn't find anything that would give me any sort of relief. Uh, we, were, we were giving mattresses away to people because you couldn't trade them in, you couldn't sell them, you couldn't do anything other than uh, just get rid of it and get a new one. Well, finally, finally, because I saw for the first time in my life a 100-night sleep guarantee, I bought a Tempur-Pedic mattress. And that seemed to change everything for me. Now, this is back in the day before there were any other foam, memory foam type mattresses. Tempur-Pedic was the first and only one at the time, and I'm telling you, I fell in love with this mattress. Okay? It was immediate the relief. It was immediate the better rest, the better sleep. So now you've got a Tempur-Pedic mattress. Oh, I loved my it was the most expensive bed I ever bought. Uh, but I had 100 nights to give it a try, and we were definitely sold after less than a week. So the mattress, coupled with my chiropractor, coupled with my exercises that I do, and I was in pretty good shape. Now, let me ask you a question. If you had the opportunity to sleep on a tempur specially designed memory foam mattress versus those old-fashioned things in my grandmother's house that were like goose down filled and box springs, which would you choose? Um, if you had the opportunity to hang out at your house all day long, what would you rather be wearing? A comfortable pair of tennis shoes and maybe some sweatpants or dress shoes and a coat and tie? There's no question. If, if you could have someone come to your house and fix for you a five-star meal and you could sit down with your family and enjoy that fine dining or go to the freezer, pull out a few TV dinners and throw them in the microwave, which would you choose? Well, obviously, those are loaded questions. Obviously, there's really only one way to answer a question like that, but they all have one thing in common, and it's this comfort. We're into comfort. We're all about comfort. Being comfortable matters greatly to Americans in American culture. That's why our living rooms are filled with lazy boys, that's why there are memory foam mattresses in our bedrooms. That's why we have full-body pillows to snuggle with at night, electric blankets. Good grief. I've got a 19-foot camper, and it has a satellite dish in it (laughs) because we're all about comfort. And there's nothing inherently wrong with wanting to be comfortable, but in America, we are all about the comfort. Uh, Several years ago, one of my favorite shows was uh, the show Dirty Jobs. Remember that show with Mike Rowe? Uh, You can still catch it on some reruns. It ran pretty strong for a while on the Discovery Channel, and I watched it every time it came on. Mike Rowe would go across America, and he would find the dirtiest, most filthy, most uncomfortable job you could possibly have, and he would not only document it on film, he would actually do the job for a couple of days, and they would document him. Some of my favorite episodes, I can remember them vividly. One time, he spent a week in the sewers beneath San Francisco, okay? In these 100-year-old tunnels, these guys are wading through sewage sludge up to their calves, sometimes their knees. They're inspecting these old tunnels. The place stunk to high heavens. Uh, One particular time, he was a chicken wrangler. Now, if you've ever picked up eggs in a chicken house, and I have, It is a very difficult experience if you're not used to it, because the bottom of a chicken house is filled with chicken excrement, okay? And the chicken excrement contains an ammonia property that burns your eyes like you won't believe. And because in this small chicken house, there may be seven, eight, 9,000 chickens, you're bound to stumble across a dead chicken that's been there for a few days, But the most disgusting Dirty Jobs episode I ever witnessed was when he was, for a day, a dead animal renderer. And I didn't even know what that meant. Dead animal renderer. When you're a dead animal renderer, what you do is you drive around in a truck... And a rancher will call you or a farmer will call you and say, I've got a dead cow or I've got a dead calf. I've got some dead goats. I've got dead sheep. And you come and get them. You load them up in the back of your truck and you carry them to this processing plant where you then deconstruct those corpses, uh, those rotting flesh corpses, so that you can boil certain parts of it and you can uh, cut up certain parts of it and make certain chemicals. A lot of that stuff is in soap, believe it or not. But the most disgusting thing about this was, now if you're a hunter, you probably have no problem, you know, shooting your animal and then hanging it up and cleaning it and uh, you know, processing the meat. I've done that plenty of times. Many of you have as well. But this is not a fresh kill. Okay, a rancher out in I don't know, Nebraska or Oklahoma, might find a cow that's been dead for a week, and that cow is swollen and it's gaseous, and it's full of all kinds of fluids, and it's been laying in the hot sun for five, six, seven days. Every one of these people, when they worked at the plant, they wore body suits and face shields because they'd poke these dead animals, and sometimes they would explode. It was the most disgusting, filthiest, gruesome thing I have ever seen in my life. And what do we do The reason a show like that is a hit in America is because we sit back in our comfortable living rooms on our comfortable couches and we laugh and we wince and we give thanks that we don't have to perform a job like that, right? That's because Americans are in to comfort. And again, nothing inherently wrong with being comfortable. We want you to be comfortable when you come to church. That's why the pews are padded. The seats are comfortable. That's why there's coffee in the lobby, We have climate control. We don't really have a dress code. You don't have to be stuffy to come to this church because we want you to be comfortable. But in my position, when I look at the church, not just our church, but the church in general across America, sometimes I worry that we're getting a little too comfortable. You see, there's a danger when we become comfortable in our faith. Remember the verse, we've been hitting it every week. It comes from Luke chapter 9 and verse... 23, Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple, that word means follower, must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. So ask yourself, what do comfort-craving fans of Jesus Christ do with something like the cross? What do we do with the phrase, take up your cross? I mean, You can't really avoid the cross if you're a Christian, right? If you come to church, a lot of churches have the cross on their steeple. It's in their paperwork. It's all over their website. It's hanging on the wall inside the auditorium. Many of you wear crosses around your neck. If you're a comfort craving fan of Jesus, what do you do with the image of the cross? What do you do with a phrase like, take up your cross and follow me? Believe it or not, I've seen it done many times. You know what fans do? They make the cross comfortable. They figure out a way to kind of tailor make their faith, to kind of customize their Christianity, to get comfortable with the cross. So much so that we throw around the phrase, well, I've got my cross to bear. We've all got our own cross to bear. Even when we're talking about the most simple and meaningful inconvenience, we call it a cross. What else are we supposed to do? I mean, how else are you going to sell Christianity if you don't make the cross comfortable? I mean, the church wants to put its best foot forward, right? There are people in this city that I continually invite to this church. Trust me, if you're trying to introduce a skeptic or a a seeker to Grace Community Church, don't start with the cross, believe me. Start with something more happy. Start with something more comfortable, Church tries to put its best foot forward. We're trying to get more people to come to Jesus. I suppose that's the point. So why in the world would we ever want to focus on the cross? And yet, without the cross, we have nothing. I've said this many times from this platform. In fact, I want to show you something. Watch this, and we'll take it further.
1: Sometimes in an effort to get as many people as possible to follow Jesus, I have, with good intentions... Made following him sound as attractive, as appealing as possible. And so I've talked a lot about the unconditional joy, the peace that passes understanding, the grace and mercy that frees us from all of our guilt and shame. Those things are true and they are beautiful and they should be spoken of often. But I've realized that I have been guilty of selling Jesus, of emphasizing only the parts about Jesus that I thought people would like. Imagine it this way, imagine if my oldest daughter grows up and goes to college and after a number of years isn't married but she really wants to be and so I decide to help the process along and I take out an ad in the newspaper and I put up a billboard sign and print up t-shirts begging someone to come and choose her, wouldn't that cheapen who she is? Wouldn't that make it seem like they were doing her a favor? I would never do that. If you want to come and get to know her, you better come with everything you've got, or I'll send you a packet.
0: I'm not a father, but if I were and I had a daughter, I'd feel exactly the way he does. If you're going to ask my daughter out, you better bring it, buddy. You better put not just your best foot forward, you better put all your feet forward. See, when we've sold Christianity in the past, and I too have been guilty of this, that's why the prosperity doctrine in America so troubles me. This idea that the the only image we have of Jesus is, is one that blesses you financially, that's not cross bearing and self denial. In fact, in the early New Testament, the Apostle Paul started a church, a church at Corinth, a Grecian city, and what He says they lacked in their faith walk maybe exactly what you've been lacking in yours. See, maybe you have so tried to make your cross comfortable or your faith walk comfortable that you found yourself very unsatisfied with the return on that investment. Enter the Apostle Paul and 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, early on when Paul would start a church, one of the first places he would go would be the Jewish synagogue in whatever city he was in. In Corinth, he would go to a Jewish synagogue and he would first try to convince Jews that Jesus Christ was indeed their promised Messiah. Well, many of them would buy in. They would become completed, as we often say, not a converted Jew, but a completed Jew who recognizes Jesus as their foretold prophetic Messiah. Well, As the church would grow, Gentiles would participate as well, the people from Corinth, the native Greeks. And in this church, both Jew and Gentile, they had the same problem. They were both guilty of trying to construct for themselves a very comfortable faith, a very comfortable faith walk. Paul wanted them to understand that comfortable faith is not only self-centered, it's also self-destructive. In First Corinthians chapter 1, both Jews and Greeks prone to pursue lives that made sense, lives that were secure, lives that were comfortable. He takes them straight back to the cross. Look at verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 1. Paul writes, for the message of the cross. Okay, now pause for a second. Let me remind you, It is the cross and its message that completely changed the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 9, if you want to read about his conversion, Paul was the premier persecutor of the church of Christ, and on on the road to Damascus, when Jesus himself took him back to the cross, Paul became the greatest missionary for the church of Christ or the church would ever know. So the message of the cross is something that Paul knew all about because it had changed transformed him. The message of the cross is foolishness, he writes, to those who are perishing. That's because the message of the cross, the image of the cross, the reason of the cross, the implication of the cross, cut straight through your own self-centeredness. Why in the world, whether you're a Jew or a Greek, would you ever want anything in this life to challenge your own sense of self-sovereignty? But that's what the cross does. The message of the cross, he says, is foolishness for those who are perishing. Interesting uh, terminology in the original Greek language. The phrase who are perishing is in the present active tense. In other words, Paul is saying these people, these fans who've made their faith comfortable, these fans who care more for comfort than cross-bearing, they are dying spiritually, and they don't even know it. But, he says, to us who are being saved, the cross is the power of God. The cross, my friends, is the transforming instrument that God uses to change or alter my intention or my desires. Let me read that again. The cross is the transforming instrument that God uses to change my intention. Now, when we talk about salvation, When we talk about entering into a right relationship with our creator, when we talk about going to heaven when we die, when this life is over, we're talking about transformation. Without transformation, there is no salvation, according to James in James chapter 2. Without transformation, faith is dead, not alive or authentic, according to James chapter 2 salvation is all about transformation and I told you this a few weeks ago one of the reasons I think some of you struggle with your own personal security before God you look back at a decision you made when you were 14 at summer camp or you were nine years old at vacation Bible school and you wonder was that step was that prayer was that faith was it authentic was it real was it saving am I eternally secure In Christ, one of the reasons you struggle is because for too long, I think the church has made the cross comfortable here. Pray the prayer, sign the card, we'll baptize you next Sunday, and we've taught nothing on self-denial and cross-bearing. The cross is that tool, that instrument that your creator uses, not just to modify your behavior. Anybody can modify your behavior. If I have power over you, I can modify your behavior. Parents try to modify the behavior of their children. A parent can teach a child to be honest. Aren't you trying to do that, parents? Be forthcoming. Tell me the truth. Above all, just don't lie to me. Okay? But let me ask you something. It's a whole different thing, isn't it, to change their desire? See, I might be able to change your behavior, I might be able to modify your behavior. But it's a God thing to alter your intention, to cause your desire to change. You see, that's what salvation is. Salvation is is not how many behaviors have you modified in light of your faith in Jesus. No. Nobody can measure themselves by that standard. That's why Paul said in Romans chapter seven I'm so confused, I don't understand what I do. I have the intention to do good, but I still do evil. I don't want to do evil but I can't seem to do the good I intend to do. Scripturally speaking, church, the question is not, has your behavior been modified? I can modify your behavior. Your boss can modify your behavior. Your husband or wife, your parents can modify your behavior. That's not the question. The question is, has your intention changed? Have your desires changed? Now, To anyone living in the first century, the cross was a symbol of weakness. If you were a Jew in the first century, the cross meant shame. It meant humiliation. It meant weakness. For many people then, and even some now, the message of the gospel that that God came to earth in the form of a man, he was crucified on a cross, well, that's just complete and total foolishness. Why in the world would God, with all of his power, with all of his knowledge, with all of his influence, why would he go about it in that way? Why would he choose the most shameful instrument, the most humiliating instrument, the most torturous, even to death, image he possibly could in order to save the world? I suppose the cross seems a lot more appealing to us in modern America because it's not an instrument of execution. Can you imagine? Let's back up a hundred years. Can you imagine while they were beheading people in certain parts of the country, electrocuting them in the electric chair? What if someone came to church and around their neck was this little bitty guillotine? That'd be like a little weird, wouldn't it? Or, or earrings, these little dangling electric chairs. Can you imagine that? You know, a lethal injection bracelet. I mean, somebody dressed like that or adorned themselves that way, we would think there's something a little wrong with them, right? See, if we had a Jew in the first century who built a time machine and could fly to our culture and see the cross hanging around your neck or the cross on our steeple or the cross in our buildings, they would think we were sick. They would think we were demented. Why do you want to examine the cross? Because in their mind, the cross was an instrument of weakness, not strength. I think that's the point, really. I think that's why God chose the cross. I think that, that's what makes the cross so beautiful. I mean, God chose from a human vantage point or a human perspective, something that we would consider foolish or shameful or embarrassing, or humiliating. He intentionally picked something that had no glory associated to it. No fanfare, no honor. He finds the least likely symbol for love and life. And he says, there, that's it. I'll use it, the cross, and watch what I do with it. I'll not only modify behavior, I'll change or alter intention. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. Look at verse 22 of chapter 1. Paul writes, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. So there's Paul in the church. He's got the Jews on one side and the Greeks on the other. The Jews were all about the signs, the signs of the Old Testament. The hundreds of prophetic references the Jews had at their disposal that pointed to their coming Messiah. Messiah. Paul is saying the Jews made their faith comfortable by connecting the promise or the prophecy to the risen Christ. The Greeks, they weren't about that. The Greeks were about wisdom, a higher form of of existence. In first century Corinth, Epicureanism was all the rage. Epicureanism taught that the highest level of existence for human beings is pleasure. That's why hedonism, Pleasure seeking was so predominant in first century Greece. So, on one side, you've got Jews that are searching for signs. On the other side, you've got Greeks that are searching for comfort. And where does Paul take them? Paul takes them straight back to the cross. Look what he says But we preach Christ crucified, not Christ who will answer your prayer or heal your body, not Christ who will bless you financially or make you happy. Paul said, I preach Christ on a cross. Keep reading. Which is a stumbling block to the Jews, because, hey, no self-respecting Jew is going to let anybody put their Messiah on a cross in humiliation. So it's a stumbling block for the Jews. He says it's foolishness to the Gentiles, because what Gentile, in pursuit of higher pleasure, wants to have anything to do with self-denial and cross-bearing. It's a stumbling block. Foolishness, verse 24. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul wants you to understand, wanted these folks to understand, that the cross demonstrates God's power in weakness, power to transform death to life. To death and back again. I mean, who else but God could take a cross which represented defeat and turn it into a symbol of victory? The last verse reads, verse 25, for the foolishness of God is still wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. See, only God can do this. Who else but God could take the cross which represents guilt and turn it into a symbol of grace? Who else but God could take the cross that represents bondage and turn it into a symbol of freedom and liberty? Who else but God could take the cross that represents pain and suffering and turn it into a symbol of healing and hope? Who else but God could take the cross, which represents shame and humiliation, and turn it into a symbol of celebration and victory? Only God can do that. A cross represents death, and God turns it into a sign of life. What seems like the ultimate moment of God's defeat was in reality the ultimate moment of his strength. Do you get that from the cross? What seems like the moment God lost, he didn't think it through, never imagined it would go this way, there's his son dying on a cross, actually is his greatest victory and strength. Only God can do that. Only God. Now, let me tell you why that matters. The reason I've led you to this place, got you to think about the cross, is because of this. What God did for the cross, he can do for us. Exactly. What God did for the cross, he can do for us. For us, only God can take your weakness and turn it into a strength. Only God can take your difficulty, even your suffering, and turn it into something that makes you strong. Only God can take your broken and darkened past and lead you to a win. Because when you are the weakest, you are exactly where you need to be for God to be the strongest. But that's so upside down in our way of thinking. But yet I'm reminded of all the famous people in this book, from Genesis to Revelation. It's a long list of of misfits and their weaknesses. The Bible goes to great lengths to shine that holy spotlight on their failure or their weakness. Abraham, the father of God's nation, was way too old to be doing what he was asked to do. Sarah, his wife, was too old as well, and she had her doubts that she wrestled with. Jacob, their grandson, was insecure. Leah, his wife, was unattractive. Joseph was humiliated. Moses had a speech impediment. Gideon was poor. Samson was proud. Rahab was immoral. David was a multiple adulterer. Elijah was suicidal. Jeremiah was depressed all the time. Jonah was like a disobedient child. Naomi was a widow. John the Baptist in the New Testament was just weird. Let me go ahead and say it. Peter was hot tempered and short fused. Martha had a lot to worry about. The Samaritan woman had failed four times in marriage. Zacchaeus was not only unpopular, he was a sellout tax collector. Thomas had his doubts. Paul lived with poor health. And Timothy, Paul's protege, was timid and shy. The Bible is a long list of imperfect misfits who discovered that weakness is actually strength. But only God can do that. And that's what he did for you on the cross. That's why the Apostle Paul later in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 9 and 10 says this. My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. My power is made perfect in your what? Strength? Weakness. Watch how Paul responds. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power might rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in my weaknesses. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Doesn't compute for us, though, does it? Because in our world, weakness is not strength. Strength is strength. Don't tell me about your weaknesses. I don't really know anyone personally who celebrates their weaknesses. Usually we try and do this to them. We try and camouflage our weaknesses, right? We try and repackage them or hide them or dress them up to where they look a little better than they really are. Because in our economy, in our way of thinking, in our culture, weakness is not strength. Strength is strength. You ever been on a job interview and been asked that dreaded question that evidently people ask all the time? I've never asked this question, but supposedly this is one of the top five questions you always ask when someone comes in on a job interview. You ask, what is your greatest weakness? What do you do with a question like that? Start feeling comfortable and, and, and squirm in your seat? I mean, I don't know really how you answer a question like that. I can tell you what you don't say. You don't tell them your greatest weakness is, you probably won't get the job, Right? You don't say, look, I'm constantly late. I procrastinate. I don't get along with my coworkers. I don't even know how to turn on a computer. You don't say things like that, right? What do you do? You try and repackage a weakness so it actually sounds like a strength. Well, that's a good question. I suppose I'm a bit of a workaholic. (laughs) That's a great question. I've never really thought of it, but people have said I'm a bit of a perfectionist. What are you doing? You're trying to make a weakness sound like a strength because in our minds, in our culture, in a way we think, that's what weaknesses are. They're not strengths, they're weaknesses. And yet Paul, 2,000 years ago, said the exact opposite. Paul said, when you're weakest, God can be strong in you. And God's weakest moment is still way stronger than your best ever. You know, there are more than 2,000 self-help books that are published every year in our, cult, in our country. 2,000. Obviously, I haven't read them all. <clears throat> but I'm willing to bet you their message is the same. You can do it. You can do it. It's in you. You've got to dig down deep. You've got to find that inner strength. And yet, over and over again, when I read this book, God seems to be saying the exact opposite so, I quit with a series of questions. Will you, like Jesus Christ did before us, trust God enough to let your weakness become His strength? Because it's when you let go of your demand for comfort, make yourself weak before God, that He can become strong in you. It's when you let go of your need to be in control manipulate all the circumstances to your benefit, that's when you become weak and God becomes strong. You see, when you're willing to give up your constant need for other people's approval, when you're willing to stop pointing to your paycheck for validation, validation look how much I make, or your trophies that hang on your wall, that's when God does something that only he can do. And he moves us from comfort seeker to cross-bearer. See? If you take something from a comfort seeker, the only way to process what's happened for that comfort seeker, that fan, if you will, is to try and take it back. It's the only reasonable solution. If you've harmed a comfort seeker, then the only way in that mentality... For a comfort seeker to react is to demand some kind of resolution, some kind of restitution. When life is unfair or circumstances give you cause to worry, fans and comfort seekers do just that, they worry. And their only solution would be to somehow change or fix the circumstance to remove the worry, but not cross bearers. Crossbearers know that life is not fair, and sometimes some will take from you and you'll never get it back. Life is not fair, and some will harm you, and you'll never, ever be able to harm them in return. Life is not fair. It will continually present worrisome, troublesome circumstances. But crossbearers know that in their weakness, that's actually when they're strong. Let's pray. Father, I don't want to be a comfort seeker. And I suppose it's easy to stand here in this arena at this time and pretend like I'm not. Father, teach us to bear our crosses, to admit our weakness before you, to stand not in our own strengths, but yours in and through us and show us what it means to bear those crosses. May people in our families and people in our communities, may they recognize the cross that we bear. May they see the hope in the darkness. May they witness the peace in the frustration. May they see the love when we've been wronged. Transform us, Father, from comfort seekers to cross bearers, I pray. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Fantastic to see you today. I mean that. I'll see you next time. Make it a great week.